chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And then when you have it, if you might, with my standing for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 24. I'll read the first 12 verses of the chapter, although I will reference the entire chapter throughout the message. Starting at verse 1 of Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had, that, that had excuse me, the spices that the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another uh, resurrection weekend that we get to celebrate annually as we Think about and proclaim your victory uh, that has changed the course of human history. And Lord, I first of all ask you that you would keep my heart from the things that ensnare men. Lord, that uh, as you know, we gather on Easter, there's the weight of the message. And sometimes, Lord, that just as men, we desire to impress the people. But I pray, Lord, that you would keep my heart from that and to see what this is really all about. We have gathered in this place today because of what you have done in human history and for no other reason. And we want to rejoice. And Lord, I realize that here on this day, people have come with all sorts of different stories that are still going to continue after they leave here today. Some people have come weighed down with the burdens of life and they have come seeking you, hoping that you might speak to them and help them to see a new way and lift the weight of life on them. Some are in this room and they need encouragement, Lord, because the future looks dim and dark. Others need the power of sin broken in their lives and others just need to have an encounter and know that you are real. Lord, you know each person by name. You know all the days that they have lived, all the days that they will live, and you know exactly what's going on in their lives. They have come to encounter you. And so in light of that, Father, I pray as Jesus prayed so many years ago, glorify yourself, glorify your son, glorify your spirit today. Take these meager, humble, human, feeble words and minister to your people. And may all they encounter today is you. We ask these things in the precious name of the greatest man who has ever lived, your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. 
So on a Saturday afternoon in late October under an Iowa sky, Pamela had waited with two of her other family members for her son and her daughter-in-law to reveal the gender of her fourth grandchild. It was a gender reveal party at her house in her backyard. Uh, and because uh, this was a gender reveal party, they wanted to, to, to do it in a unique way because their idea was to uh, record what they were happening, the events, and then to post those on social media for everyone else to know the gender of the baby. And the concept that they had in mind was to have this explosive kind of uh, reveal that would happen. And so some members in the family had decided to put together a device to shoot powder in the air, and the color of the powder would indicate the gender of the baby. And so in her backyard, Pam and the other family members stood about 15 yards away from the device uh, that had been rigged up to reveal the baby's gender. Now those who had been engineering it had put some gunpowder at the bottom of the device and welded it to a metal base. The apart, one of the party attendees said it this way or described the device. So there was a hole that had been drilled in the side for a fuse. A piece of wood had been placed on top of the gunpowder and color powder was placed on top of the board. Tape was then wrapped over the top of the metal tubing, inadvertently creating a pipe bomb. Instead of the gunpowder shooting the powder out of the top of the stand, the stand exploded and sent it metal pieces flying through the air. One of those airborne pieces of shrapnel collided with Pam before landing another 144 yards away in a field. As you might guess, the blow was instantly fatal. She was only 56 years old at the time. And so that following Thursday, instead of celebrating the birth of a new baby, they were celebrating the life of Pam on that Halloween day. On most occasions when this silent and sinister foe appears, it is undesired. And for many in our culture, we don't spend time thinking about this foe, although we know that it is unavoidable. Perhaps we don't give it much attention because the graves of all of the cemeteries around us cry out that the foe does not release its captives. The teacher of Ecclesiastes, who was an observer of life, made a profound observation many years ago, and the words are recorded for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. But the grave is not the only foe that we face in life. Before that, we often confront and many times succumb to the sly fiend that dismantles our life from the inside out. Paul Tripp in his book on marriage shares various stories about couples he's counseled. And this particular story, I believe, unmasks the sly fiend that arises in our life. Nathan stood in his walk-in closet with that crumpled piece of paper in his hand. He, he had found it several weeks before there in the closet. 
and everything since that he had found the note had been hard. Now his wife Anita, she had made no denials when confronted about the situation. She had become emotionally involved or infatuated with a, a co-worker. And the relationship had never become physical in any way. It had never been outside the office. There had never been anything that had gone beyond simply some writing of notes. But Nathan found this note nonetheless devastating. If we were to read the note, we would probably put it into the category of a love letter. And Nathan couldn't figure out why he couldn't seem to let go of the note. Day after day, he would drag the note out again and, and read it all over. He doesn't know why he did it, but he couldn't stop himself. He would read it every day. And although Anita was remorseful and, and she was doing everything to make amends for it, it was never enough. And Nathan was thankful that she had quit her job and, and tried to distance herself from that relationship, but he couldn't stop. The note was like a Mount Everest in his life that he knew he needed to climb, but he could not get to the top. And for him, it seemed to drain his will to continue. See, somewhere along the way in Anita's life, her desires got the better of her, and she violated the trust that had been given to her. If you were here with us on Friday evening, then, as you know, Mike Bongo shared with us that we all have this battle of unhealthy thoughts and desires that seem to exert on us a controlling influence in our lives that lead us into treachery. We can know something is wrong and still find ourselves unable to escape because in the moment of temptation, it feels like magnetism. And the only option seems to be Yes. Jesus put it this way, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. There's an enemy in me. So how does anyone or how do I or how do you triumph over these negative powers that are seeming to rule and dominate our world, not just our lives, but in the lives of everyone around us that we know. And is there any hope from the escape of their power? Well, the answer rests with Jesus of Nazareth. So on a Friday, in a few years, it'll be almost exactly 2,000 years ago that Jesus was beaten and crucified. And then, like the rest of us, he died. Joseph of Arimathea, who was assisted by Nicodemus, rushed to re remove his beaten and tortured body from the cross and prepare it for burial before the Sabbath day arrived. And according to Jewish custom, they wrapped his body in a linen shroud with about 75 pounds of spices. You might ask, why, why were the spices present? This was to combat the odor that was most likely would happen after there would be this year-long process of decomposition because um, the custom was, if history was the God, after they had laid him in the tomb, they were going to wait a year, and then after a year to let the body decompose, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea would return, and they would gather the bones of Jesus, and they would put them into an 
ossuary box, and then they would put this ossuary box into a, a tomb where it would be kept in hopes of the final day when God would generally have the general resurrection and all people would get up from the grave. And it would be on that day, like everyone else, Jesus would be just another one among the many. Weighed down with tremendous grief and shattered messianic hopes, the two men, along with, we find out, two women who accompanied them, made their respective way back to their homes after doing the funeral rites. And the women, like most women, when they got home, they kept working. They went on to prepare some spices and ointments because they knew they needed to come back to finish the process that had only begun on that Friday. However, because they were God-fearing Jews, they observed the Sabbath, and so they rested on the Sabbath as the Lord commanded. And while they waited in their residence, there in the cold, still, silent, darkness of the tomb lay the corpse of the sinless, sacrificial Savior of others, Jesus, the Son of God. Around 6 a.m. on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and a few other women returned to the tomb to finish the process to anoint Jesus' body with the spices to, to cover up the smell of decomposition that was to be happening that year long. No one expected it. No one was prepared for it. But as the text goes on to say, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So we don't know when, but sometime early Sunday morning before the women arrived and before the guards were frightened away in the quiet, in the darkness, the power of God burst forth in the tomb of Jesus, transforming his lifeless, tortured, mortal body into the very first immortal, glorified, supernatural new body. And the spirit and consciousness of Jesus that had departed on Friday now returned on Sunday morning. And then he disappeared because Jesus was alive. What Mary Magdalene, the other women, and eventually Peter and John discovered, however, was simply an empty tomb. The body of Jesus was gone. Only the linen shroud and the face cloth remained in the tomb. Now, from this evidence, they did not conclude that Jesus had been raised. No, they came to a different conclusion. Initially in the text, we see that Mary Magdalene's heart is filled with anguish as tears flooded her eyes because Mary wept for Jesus. Mary believed, as we find out, that John did as well, that the religious leaders who had stationed the guards most likely had taken the body of Jesus during some unappointed time of the night and relocated it. That's the conclusion that they had come to. And all that was in Mary's heart was to find the body of Jesus. 
Can you feel the emotional toil of, of trying to find the remains of someone you've loved? You've come back to the grave site only to discover that someone without telling you has moved their body to another location and you don't know where to find it. Remember, Mary had been freed from the power of the devil by Jesus. He had radically changed her life. And now she came to his tomb only to find it disturbed. Her only thought, where have you laid him? Until he appeared. He asked, woman, why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? She mistook him from the garden, and so she answered, please, sir, with tears in her eyes. Where have you laid him? If you'll tell me, I'll go, and I'll take him away. Jesus turned the moment around simply by saying one word. He called her name, Mary. And at that moment, without a shadow of a doubt, she knew it was Jesus. Have you ever heard the good shepherd call your name? She and the other women upon immediately recognizing Jesus fell to the ground, grabbed his feet, and they worshiped him. But he told her to release him because life was not going back to the way that it had been before. His triumph over death had changed everything. And so he instructed the women to go back and inform the apostles and the disciples that he planned to meet them. And what did the, the women do? What they had faithfully already been doing. They did as Jesus instructed. Now, interestingly, while this was going on, we find out that the guards had made their way back to the religious leaders and shared about this supernatural experience of an angel showing up to, to roll the stone away that had frightened them to death. And upon hearing the news, you would think that hearing that kind of news would make you reconsider your position and repent and turn. But that's not what happened. They heard it, and they concocted a fairy tale and circulated the story that tell them during the night while the body was under guard the disciples came rolled the stone away and stole the body we find out from history that that rumor was all the way circulated even under as Justin Martyr says into the second century but notice in the text how the men respond when the women show up to tell them what they experienced. Luke 24, verses 10 and 11. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The men did not respond with faith. They dismissed what the women shared about Jesus simply as fiction. Why? Well, culturally speaking, women's testimony during the first century didn't carry much credibility, which begs the question, why did all the gospel writers choose to preserve the testimony of the women as the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb? And Matthew and John even preserve the fact that the women were the first ones to encounter the resurrected Jesus. 
Well, the events began to unfold. We find out Sunday afternoon, according to Luke chapter 24, two male disciples are walking along the road. They've left Jerusalem. They're on their way to Emmaus, and Jesus joins the conversation. They don't know it's him. He asks them about the events that have transpired, and they share, even though the women have come and told them they don't believe them. And so Jesus rebukes them for not believing the Bible. It's not until they're sitting down at a meal and Jesus breaks the bread and lays out his hand, most likely revealing the wounds, that they realize who he is. And at the moment that they realize who he is, he's gone. He vanishes. Of course, they can't keep this good news to themselves. They immediately get up and return to Jerusalem from which they have came to share that Jesus lives. Well, that same day, that evening, according to Luke 24 and John 20, Jesus appeared among the disciples who had gathered. But he showed up to give them proof that he was alive. He presented his hands and his feet and his side where he had been pierced for our transgressions. And he invited them to, to, to handle him, to touch him, and to see that he was flesh and, and bones. And the experience was so surreal that the text tells us they struggled to believe even though the evidence was staring them in the face. So Jesus, knowing that he asked them for food, and they sat in amazement as they watched him consume the fish. And we can understand how hard this can be something outside of the realm of my experience that seems impossible is, is happening right in front of me. And though all of my senses are testifying to the reality that Jesus lives, it's, it's hard for my heart to grasp it, even though it's true. We find out later that Thomas was not with them. And you can't imagine the exuberance that they have, the joy as they, they share with Thomas. I'm sure they were talking over one another, trying to explain to Thomas what they had experienced, that Jesus was alive, the women weren't crazy like we thought, that, that, that he was here. We had touched him, we, we, we ate with him. He's alive, he's living, he's back. And Thomas said, I don't believe it. Mm -mm. Nope, 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 nope. I, I need to see it for myself. I, I, I've got to put my fingers in the nail prints in his hands. I, I've got to touch his side. And when I touch him, I'll know it's real. But Jesus wasn't there when Thomas made that statement. But a week later on Monday, they were gathered together again, and Thomas was with them. And Jesus appeared, even though the doors were locked. And who did he come to address? He walked right to Thomas and said, here I am. Feel me. Thomas was embarrassed in a moment, of course, and wouldn't you be? <laughs> As the evidence showed up. Jesus confronted him about the very things that he said. But there's something interesting in the text that Jesus says to Thomas which brings us into the story. He says, because you have seen me, have you now believed? Blessed are they who did not see, who do not see, or who, do, who did not see, and yet believed. I'm sure that if I were to pan this room and poll the audience, no one has run into the resurrected Christ. But you believe, even though you have not seen him. 
We find out later that Jesus sometime appears at some time later when they are fishing and the resurrected Jesus prepares a meal for the disciples, Chef Jesus. I don't know, that fish must have been perfectly cooked. <laughs> One of the things that we walk away from the New Testament with is that the uniform eyewitness account of the fact is that they all testify in one direction, that Jesus is alive. And so in the earliest Christian creed that we have preserved in the writings of Paul's, framed it out this way. As Paul said, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. That's great news. But what does this historical event that happened in the life of Jesus of Nazareth and his disciples have anything to do with us today? Well, I believe in Luke 24, there are three ideas or concepts that we can raise from what Luke wrote in the text. Here's the first one. Because Jesus lives, we can trust what he said. Because Jesus lives, we can trust what he says. Look back at the text, verse 6 and 7. Notice what the angels say. He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you? While he was still in Galilee, that, son, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. Think about it. All of the elements of what Jesus foretold happened just as he foretold them. We heard about on Friday night how Judas betrayed him for money and sold him to the religious leaders. The religious leaders charged Jesus with being just another false messiah, a pretender, one who was deceiving the people as others had done and would continue to do throughout the centuries to follow. He told them, no, that he was the son of man that had been referenced in Daniel's vision in chapter 7. But they didn't believe him, so they handed him over for crucifixion. Pilate had him crucified, and he died. And then what was humanly impossible occurred, just as the angel told Mary at his conception when she asked about how it was going to happen, and just as Jesus told his disciples when it came to rich people getting into the kingdom of heaven, he said, with God, all things are possible. And so on Sunday morning, about 2,000 years ago, God raised Jesus from the dead. And by God doing that, he validated that Jesus' words can be trusted. So when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Or at Lazarus's funeral, when he said to Martha, who was grieving, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Based on the resurrection, we can trust what Jesus says, no matter how outstanding it may seem in the moment. And despite the appearance of the finality of death that I spoke about earlier, death will not have the last word. Because Jesus lives, he will. And after he raises us from the dead, on that day, in our new glorified bodies, when we stand alive again, we will be able to take up the taunt song which Paul recorded for us, and we will be able to say, on that day, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because Jesus lives, we can trust what he said. Because Jesus lives, we have a mission to accomplish. Because Jesus lives, we have a mission to accomplish. Luke chapter 24, verse 45, we pick it up here. Then he, being Jesus, opened their mind to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Matthew has his own version of this event and account of the commission of Jesus, and he frames it in those popular words that we know when he said this, as Jesus said these words to the apostles. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And even John has his own recording of Jesus giving a mission to us when he wrote these words of Jesus saying, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Because Jesus lives, we and he has all authority, he has commanded us to carry the message about the forgiveness of sins and the only way a person can have life with God that comes only through him to others who live in this world. And those, as we carry the message out, not everyone will respond rightly, but those who do respond in repentance and faith, we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And those whom we baptize, we then teach uh, and teach them how to follow Jesus by instruction, by example, and by, by correction to obey all that Jesus and his apostles have commanded us as the apostles have given us Jesus' command. Because Jesus lives, we have a mission to accomplish. Lastly, because Jesus lives, we have divine aid. Because Jesus lives, we have divine aid. We see this in the final verse of Luke chapter 24 and verse 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, 
but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, we must ask, what is the promise of the Father? For this, we simply need to go back to John chapter 14 and chapter 16. And we find out from reading those texts that what Jesus is talking about is none other than the Holy Spirit, who he says is going to indwell believers and change our relationship to God. John, in the prologue to his gospel, preserves this change when he writes, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In Luke's account, we find out that the Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. But in John's account, it's in verse 22 at the end of his gospel that we see Jesus bequeathing the Spirit when he breathes on the apostles and the disciples and tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, why is Jesus giving the Holy Spirit to supply us with divine power? Is it so that we can realize our dreams in life? Is that why we've been provided divine power? Well, textually speaking, that's not the reason. He provides us divine power, first of all, in context, is so that we can accomplish the mission that he left us here to do, to carry the message of Jesus into the world, into all kinds of territories, friendly and hostile. And in the message of that, the Holy Spirit enables us as we step out in faith to share the message about what God has accomplished through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. He empowers us in those moments. And if you want some examples, simply read the book of Acts. So he empowers us for mission, but he also empowers us to deal with those controlling desires that I talked about earlier that seem to dominate our lives so that we don't succumb to them. What the Holy Spirit does when he takes up residence in the believer is he breaks the power of sin in our lives so that we, like Jesus, can triumph in this life. He helps us so that we're able to say no, even though we feel like saying yes in the moments when we are tempted. Paul said as much to the Romans. We've covered this already, but I'll just simply, by way of reminder, read the verse back to you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons, or we might say children, of God. He communicates a similar message to the Galatians when he said this, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. See, there's a battle going on in us between godly desires and ungodly desires, and the text seems to indicate that it requires our participation by yielding to the Spirit's guidance as he empowers us to say no to ourselves. We work with the Spirit, but as Mike Bongo said, there is a battle, and if we want to have victory, we must also engage in the battle. It's by the Spirit's power that we overcome those desires that want us to say yes to our own demise. The Spirit helps us for the mission. The Spirit helps us as we live our daily lives to say no to sin and, and yes to righteousness, but the Spirit also ultimately will help us overcome death. Paul said as much in the preceding verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. 
if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and that's a conditional statement, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The reason you're going to get up on the last day is because the spirit who is present in you now, the same one who raised Jesus from the dead, will also on the day of resurrection grant life to your mortal body, and you will live again just like Jesus. But there's something else. Because Jesus lives, he's able to respond to our prayers. The writer of Hebrews phrased it this way. We've read this before, but let me remind you of it. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Listen, a dead Jesus can't answer your prayers. He needs help himself. But Jesus is not dead. He lives and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And because he lives, when, you're, when you pray in your room, no matter how you feel about whether or not your prayer makes it out of the walls of your room, there's someone listening. And it's Jesus. And it's not about how you feel. The fact is that his ears are open to your prayers. And so when you utter those words, he hears and he's able to render aid in those moments when you need it. Because Jesus lives, we have divine help. Now, in their book on the resurrection, Ross Clifford and Philip Johnson offered uh, the account of a non-Christian photojournalist by the name of George Gitos. George uh, likes to travel to some very dangerous areas uh, in the midst of war, and he takes photographs of people who are suffering in war, and he spent his life doing that, and it's amazing that he made it out of a variety of situations. Well, one particular account happened during the, the season when things were going on in Rwanda, and he was there with a United Nations medical team to take and document what was going on as he was, they were pro providing emergency relief. And, and, and he recalls one of the experiences, and this is what he said. It was horrific. We saw thousands of women and children killed before our eyes. We were going in and getting the wounded out as people were macheting and shooting and killing. And suddenly, there was this guy standing in the middle of the people who were dying all around him. And he just began giving the sermon in one of the most beautiful, melodious African voices mingling English and French and Rwandan, quoting sections of the New Testament, those bits which gave hope, those passages to do with the resurrection. Gitos went on to call this photograph the preacher, and he did a painting out of it. But he said this, the preacher represents what I think religion should do, raise people up, make people feel human and spiritually alive, and give them courage and faith. And reflecting on this, the writer said the medical team could offer nothing despite all of their skills and technology. But, but with the risen Christ, there is hope for eternity in the face of certain death. When I was growing up, and I'll close with this, when I was growing up, I went to church with my parents. My dad was a minister, and so we went to church whether we wanted to or not. That was part of life. Some of you know what that experience is like. 
and we were carried off in the church. And, and when I, we, I, grew up, I grew up going to a, a Baptist church in the South. And we went to a Baptist church, and often we had those old wooden pews, those long pews. I don't know if you remember those or you, you know what that's like, and we would be standing there. And, you know, as a child, they were singing these songs, and, and I would hear them time and time again, which got old because it was repetitive, and you like, you just hear them so many times. And you'd be sitting there as a child trying to figure out what in the world are they singing about because those words had no meaning for my life at that time. But now as an adult, facing the uncertainties of the world and, and, and knowing about the tragedies that occur in life, it's now in these moments as an adult that I recall those old songs to mind and they began to play. And now those words that once had no significance have great meaning and, and weight in my life because I now understand in light of what they're singing, why my mother at times when she sang those songs and I was a child squirming about in the pew while she was weeping as those those words were coming out of her mouth. And one of those songs went a little something like this. The first word said, God sent his son, and they called him Jesus. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He bled and died to buy my pardon. My Savior lives because He lives. I can face tomorrow because He Because Jesus lives, death has become a doorway to God's presence where we will await until the final day where as we sang earlier in this service, where we will hear him call our name and we will run out of our graves. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of Jesus and we find hope in him despite the despair of the world and the horrors that surround us in this life that could destroy our reason to live. 
But because Christ lives, we have hope to continue and to go through each day despite the difficulties and the unknown things that show up in our lives because we know there will be a better day when Christ comes. And we rejoice because it is on this day that you turned around the events of the world by raising Jesus from the dead. And because he lives, we will live. And we give thanks to you for that. And now, Father, we, with joyous hearts, share the resources that you have blessed us with so that the ministry can go forward and the mission can be accomplished as we make disciples of all nations. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and mighty name. Amen. darkness we were weak without hope without light till from heaven you came running there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of Salvation, Jesus, for our sake, you die. 
All of heaven held his breath Till that stone was moved for good For the Lamb had conquered death And the dead rose from their tombs And the angels saluted all For the souls of all who would come To the Father all restored And the church of Christ was born the spirit in the flame Now it's God's truth of old Shall not kneel, shall not fade I am burning in His name It is freedom I am free For the love of Jesus Christ Who has resurrected me
here to you. Yeah. 